The Rwando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. All right, good morning, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about nice guy syndrome. And this is a topic that was voted on by in the polls in the Masculine Underground. There's an overwhelmingly uh, a large response to speak about antidotes to nice guy syndrome. It's kind of synchronistic because uh, if you follow the podcast, we just had Dr. Michael Pariser on who wrote a book called The Nice Guy, um, No More Mr. Nice Guy, The Hero's Journey. It's a workbook that works off of Dr. Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. If you're dealing with nice guy syndrome, I highly recommend you check out that episode. It just dropped last Thursday, so it's up on my podcast. Um, podcast.romano.com, also on iTunes and Stitcher. So it's interesting that of all the topics, uh, guys in the group voted on this topic as well. And also, partly because of my conversation with Dr. Pariser, and also just life, uh, someone in the group pointed um, posted a question, uh, how has quarantine affected your masculinity or something like that? Um, the big thing for me is I've recognized elements of nice guy syndrome in myself through introspection, I went through a breakup, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I recognized, man, I got some shit that I thought I dealt with a long time ago. <laughs> like It's kind of like smacked me in the face in a way that I'm embarrassed about, but this is also how we grow. So I'm gonna share some of that with you. I'm gonna share the points that I feel are relevant to all guys dealing with nice guy syndrome. Um, if you're watching this live, uh, if you pop on, feel free to ask questions in real time. I will try to answer them in real time. If you are listening to the uh, recording of this on the podcast or on YouTube um, and you're a guy, make sure to join the Masculine Underground Forum where we hold these live. Or you can shoot me an email if you have questions. I try to be available. One announcement. Um, I, you may have caught me on an episode a while ago saying the archetype class is half off. Uh, if you haven't noticed, my website is still slowly being rebuilt. So I'm going to maintain this uh, for at least another week or so. The archetype class will only be 49 bucks instead of 97 until my new website is up. I'm not exactly sure when that will be. I hope it is soon. All right. And just a big thank you to everyone in the Masculine Underground Forum. You are the reason why I choose to do these things. Even though not a lot of people hop on live, um, it's, I don't know, it's just a weird thing like where I feel super comfortable and happy to speak in a live recording, whereas like if I try to record this on my own, I get distracted. I feel like I'm talking into space with nobody. It's not as fun. I don't know why there's the performer in me or something. I'm not really sure. Okay, so I'm gonna speak about nice guy syndrome in three stages. Um, stage one being, and actually, and I'm also gonna reference a few of the other podcasts that I've done because nice guy syndrome is a term that Dr. Glover created, but it's kind of an umbrella term for a lot of men's issues of personality. We could call it. I mean, we call it like issues of the psyche, but really it's about the expression of ourselves, right? So we call it an issue of personality. And there's three stages that I think we go through. Uh, if I'm honest, I, I've only gone through two of them fully. I think I'm dabbling into stage three, but I'm going to share about that with you. The first stage being kind of like infant level consciousness, where anxiety and what we might call weakness or betaness exists. And this is where most guys who get into personal development recognize themselves because a guy in this stage is anxious. Um, he's supplicating. He might not recognize he has nice guy syndrome. Here's where he's like really doing all the things that we associate with nice guys, um, being supplicating, um, uh, 
living through covert contracts, trying to get favor from women or people, trying to be liked and like in a way that we, most of us will look at and be like, ah, that's gross. Many of us have had behaviors like that and we're gonna talk about why those exist, but that's like stage one. Stage two is uh, the antidote. And the title of this episode, Antidote to Nice Guy Syndrome, is kind of a play on or a double meaning in that um, when I spoke with Dr. Pariser about Nice Guy Syndrome, and I mentioned how I recognized that I have latent symptoms of nice guy syndrome that I thought were gone, but they're coming out in weird ways. They're coming out because I'm actually doing opposite behavior to compensate for an insecurity I have. Um, he's like, oh, well, you have an antidote to it. The antidote is nice. The antidote is better than having the original problem, but it's still not the full solution. Stage two is where a lot of guys go to next, where they do the opposite of their nice guy behavior. Um, and this is kind of what the red pill community is. Um, uh, in an extreme, it's what MGTOW does. And we talk about the MGTOW insecurities. Um, but it's where guys become hard asses. Guys realize, oh, that nice guy stuff I did when I was younger, it doesn't work. It doesn't get me laid. It doesn't get me loved. Uh, it doesn't get me respect. So they do the 180 opposite, which works better. You know, you tend to get more respect when you're being a hard ass, um, blah, blah, blah. But it's still not complete. And here's where, here's where I recognized um, my own shit, where I've done various things in response to my old nice guy patterns, and it's created uh, kind of like backdoor issues in my life. So this is not the stopping point, and I say this a lot. I'm going to talk about Red Pill quite a bit. Um, Red Pill, I think there's a lot of great stuff in that worldview, in that community. I recommend some Red Pill books to some of my clients who are so deep in like the stage one of nice guy syndrome that they need to learn some some hardness um, but you don't want to be stuck hard and there's there's issues that we're going to talk about that come with that that's kind of the antithesis of nice guy syndrome of nice guy syndrome is the thesis and uh and then stage three is what, what some people would call integrated masculinity or balance or synthesis um and i have thoughts there around general security but to be honest, I recognize that I'm not fully there and we're going to talk about that because the thing I can speak about with most confidence is my experience and I'm going to try to relate it to everyone. Let's get a sip of coffee and we're going to dive in. And of course, if you haven't been on these live before, if you drop questions, I'm happy to go off on tangents. We have an hour here. Uh, I have my notes, but I like to keep things organic. So. Important to define what nice guy syndrome is, even though I think most guys know what it is. And I'm going to try to speak about it in a way that is not just a regurgitation of Dr. Glover and other people. All that stuff is great, but I want to add something new that is useful. Nice guy syndrome is an incomplete expression of masculinity. It is a veneer that men put on themselves that dilute themselves because we think that'll get uh, more validation. And it typically starts really young, uh, and I'm going to quote Omar Pani, who was also on the podcast recently, where he said, men will do whatever they think will work. And he was referring to getting love or status or getting laid. And this is, uh, this is how most of us behave, especially if you have a testosterone-driven mind, um, a problem-solving mind, uh, what we would call a masculine individual. You do what you think works. If you see something, if you, see, if you do a behavior and it gets a response you don't like, from infant level even or toddler level, you realize, oh, that's probably not a good thing to do. Uh, you do something and it gets a response that you do like, 
people clap, people cheer, your mommy kisses you, uh, girls like you, people respect you, you do more of that. And it's, it's normal, I mean, this is not just a male behavior, everyone does that from the youngest age of consciousness. Oh, let me do more of what gets me things that I like, validation, love, etc. This is the root of nice guy syndrome and where it comes from because it's not like, um, it is a very uh, artificial way to behave. Um, it's not true to ourselves, but there's a, a good reason why many guys have evolved to do this is because our environment told us, hey, this is good. Um, I think we're in an extreme in our culture right now, especially in the media, where um, the media is explicitly saying to young men, to be effeminate, basically, I think the words toxic masculinity are thrown out. I really feel for younger guys right now, like the Generation Z kids, um, because they've been force-fed tons of propaganda because they grew up with YouTube and the internet and all that stuff. But even for the rest of us, nice guy syndrome has existed forever. Um, many of us were initially conditioned by our mothers, not because that our mothers were trying to dilute us intentionally, um, but... I think this is largely, I mean, I'll speak for my generation, uh, millennials, Generation Y, we grew up with mothers who, who themselves grew up in third wave feminism, and the, the crux of third wave feminism is let's beat men at their own game. Good reason for why they came up with that uh, ideology, but when you are in a household where your mother is, um, is domineering or... Uh, trying to control your masculinity and, and really like any any type of domineering behavior comes from fear like any type any person who's like seeking power is seeking power because of fear they're trying to like, seek power because they once felt powerless um, there was a fear of the masculine which is also justified and I'm saying this I'm saying like I'm trying to go back and understand the um, the reasons for these different social forces in a way that we can drop our resentment. And I'm going to talk about the red pill community and like misogyny and MGTOW in a little bit, not for moral reasons, not because I'm trying to like make us all kumbaya, but because if you're holding on to resentment, you're actually making yourself stuck in stage two and not letting yourself go to stage three. If you are, you know, I, I'm critical of certain elements of feminism. I'm critical of uh, certain ways that boys are being raised right now and some of the propaganda out there. And I sometimes get angry about it, if you notice on the podcast, but to hold on to that anger, it's, it, it keeps you stuck in that mode where you can't move to stage three where you don't give a shit anymore, right? Like, um, I'll get into that later. Um, so but this is why I'm trying to get to the, the root of it. So uh, for many thousands of years, women have been oppressed in various ways. We can argue about the, the degree of it or how oppressed were they really, but you know, uh, ever since agriculture, and I talk about this in um, some of the uh, Jungian episodes on how and why patriarchy uh, was created and what it is really, I don't think it was from misogyny, um, but misogyny might be a symptom of society evolving for a testosterone-driven mind. Um, essentially, uh, as feminism grew in power, and they identified they they identify their ideology of hypermasculinity is bad, and there there's evidence from it. Like there have been plenty of men throughout history who've beaten women, who've oppressed women, who've controlled their sexuality, who've put them down. That has happened in life. Not that all men have done that. Um, uh, and the thing about ideologies is that ideologies have to have a simple slogan. So the idea behind 
correcting that, and it should have been corrected, right? Like men shouldn't go around beating women. That's an element of, I would say, stage two nice guy syndrome, which we'll get to. Um, in an effort to control hypermasculinity, they controlled all masculinity. And um, in, in a sense, a lot of men of my generation and later have been raised consciously or often unconsciously to be docile. Um, and it might have not have been a conscious effort of your mom, although I think, you know, if you have typically particularly bad nice guy syndrome, you may notice you have a domineering mother. I think that's very common. Or I should say it the other way around. Like if you had a domineering mother, most likely you have uh, some sort of crisis of masculinity, even if her intentions were good. And I, I assume most people's moms meant well. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to cast blame, but it's good to know where this comes from. Essentially, uh, the, the dogma that was given to many of us when we were young boys is like, be a good little harmless boy and I will love you. Um, this was, and this going into our, our the, the normal child behavior of, uh, let me do whatever works, right? It's like, oh, if I don't do aggressive things, if I don't do things that, some things which might be natural, if I don't like, I don't know, I don't know, pick your typical boy behavior, if I don't do these things, mommy gives me more validation, of course that feels good when you're little. Later on, you might sort of notice, and then it's, uh, and I'll speak for myself, this is kind of how I was raised. I, uh, my mom, well, I should say this, I grew up in a typical Asian household, or a particularly Asian household, and I've actually been thinking about doing an episode specifically on Asian upbringings. Um, I know it doesn't apply to everyone, but like, there's some acute things that I think are true. Uh, kind of relates to Catholic upbringings too, so maybe I'll make it like a more umbrella episode. But essentially, there's a lot of uh, societal control on such a boy in such an environment from a very young age. Um, but what happened to me and what happens to most kids is that at some point you realize, oh, the conditioning I've been given, be a good boy, doesn't get me validation out in the real world. And kids have uh, this realization at different times. For me, it was even like around six years old, I recognized that the way that my mom was training me to behave, the, way, the, the behavior that got validated at home, didn't get me validated when I was hanging out with kids on the block, right? I actually was able to make friends better by being a little meaner. Like I didn't understand it at first, but like when I was like being soft and kind and extra courteous and uh, extra placating, uh, little kids didn't respect me. <laughs> so that was like my first click. And then of course, later on, uh, when uh, puberty starts to arise, I recognize, oh, uh, the mode of behavior that I've been like conditioned to be doesn't get girls to like me. And I remember um, this going back to men will do whatever they think works. I remember being in, in track camp when I was 14 and I was in the bunks and I was listening to like the older boys, like the 16 year olds talk about girls because they were the wise elders in the tribe. Um, and, and a lot of them were like, just the, this is way before the pickup industry or, or anything like that existed. So like you just had these boys like theorizing, like how do, you, how do girls, how do you get girls to like you, right? And a lot of the older kids were coming to the conclusion of like, oh, if uh, girls like you better when you don't care about them. And a lot of the guys were like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, like when I really like a girl, she goes away. And when I don't like her so much, she comes to me. And that's like a, that's like very basic observational, uh, a basic observation for most boys. Like, like, oh yeah, when I don't care, or like when I'm a little meaner, or when I treat her 
when I don't do what um, the cartoons and Disney movies and mommy said I should do, or I don't like write her poetry and give her notes and like like stare at her and tell her she's so beautiful. Like she actually likes me better when I treat her poorly. Um, and I'm not saying this is the truth, but this is a conclusion a lot of young men make. Um, and we recognize that uh, this thesis of be a good boy and everyone will like and respect you does not work. Um, I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Oh, and so just like as a sidebar, uh, it's good to understand when it comes to ideologies, it's like a little bit off topic, but when it comes to ideologies, whether feminist ideologies or we see in the media, uh, left wing and right wing ideologies are very loud. I spoke about this more in the sexual shame episode, so I'm not going to repeat it, but ideologies are a way that humans um, organize beyond our ability to socialize. Uh, so if we have uh, an ideology of we're Americans or we're Christians or we're whatever, we're flat earthers, like we can all come up with this uh, blanket ideology that connects us beyond our ability to socialize because we only socialize with so many people. This is how we've created nation states and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but for an ideology to be effective, it has to be simple. Like you can't have a nuanced statement and put it on a picket, right? Which is why uh, uh, anything you put on a picket sign, any, any uh, slogan that you organize an ideology around has to be simple because it appeals to a primal level of our consciousness. So they have to be something with only a few words like make America great again or all men are trash or uh, all cops are racist or something like that. It has to be uh, a statement that you can just like like apply to everything. You'll never see a nuanced statement on a sign like men are sometimes trash when they're violating women in these contexts. Like, you can't say, you can't put that on a picket sign. No one's going to like fall behind that. Um, that'd be simple in all purpose. But the problem is uh, when you have a simple generalizing sign, it, it misses out on the nuances. And like for, I mean, I'm going to end on this point here. Uh, feminist propaganda has put into boys hey, look at all this toxic masculinity, which has become equated with masculinity is toxic. And like when a boy is young and he's like impressionable and he thinks, um, oh yeah, it is toxic when a, a man violates a woman. It is toxic when they do this. Oh, I guess men are toxic or masculinity is toxic. I mean, obviously this is not a, a conscious level of thinking, but on the primal unconscious, it makes these conclusions. Then a boy, a young man or an older man feels ashamed of his natural impulses and it creates this disconnect. The disconnect is greatest during puberty because let's say up until puberty you've been conditioned fully by the propaganda of your reference group of like be a good little boy, be nice to everybody, be placating and you'll be loved and respected and it's like that's like seeped into you and then all of a sudden uh, this primal level, uh, uh, this genetic programming that has been evolved into you to procreate starts coming out and it doesn't fit it's like a, a root, roots growing in a different direction than the tree. And then and that causes this disconnect where it, it creates a lot of inner turmoil. It creates a lot of, like this disconnect causes shame, as I spoke about extensively in the Dark Masculine episode. But uh, what, what results in nice guy syndrome is that this top-down propaganda or this top-down conditioning becomes so overwhelming that the, the individual is like, oh, the, these roots coming out of me, this, this sexual impulse, it must be false. Because the thing about sexuality, the reason why I talk about sex so much, not because I care about like sex skills, but of course sex skills are important. Uh, Arousal Control Secrets is my sex skills program. Um, but sex is something you can't fake. 
right? The, the sex drive has evolved completely, completely independently and, and many, uh, many evolutionary generations before our, our rational minds, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's pure in a sense, right? It's, uh, it's not been, it can't be affected by ideology. Um, human minds can add all this stuff and say like, oh, this thing about sex is bad and it's the devil and it's demonic and whatever, but it, it just stays the same. Like our sex drive is not intelligent enough to know any better, so it does what it's been programmed to do. This is nature. And you know, I say this all the time that uh, two places where we can look to see how, we're, like, how we've been designed to behave, I don't mean designed from like an almighty creator, but designed evolutionarily is, uh, or maybe it's the same thing for some of you, um, is we can look at sex and we can look at comedy. Sex and comedy uh, exist on a, a level beneath our ideologies. So you can say this is funny or this should be attractive or not, and you can add all these taboos on stuff, but we still laugh at what we laugh at. And we're still turned on by what we're turned on by. And actually, if you've accepted uh, an ideology that is totally unnatural, like let's say I, I use this example in the, in the Dark Masculine episode, if you grew up racist, uh, and you believe that a certain a certain color of person is bad, it's very normal and it's, this is a very common thing that racist people have sexual fantasies about the exact race that they are uh, hating on. Why? Because our primal unconscious is like, wait a minute, that's wrong. Like, we're going to force you to like women of color or whatever, women of non-color or whatever it is that you've been ostracizing in your mind. We're going to force you to uh, fetishize this to correct everything and bring everything to balance. This is not to say that everything primal is right, like it might be primal to want to punch someone in the face when you're angry, but the impulses need to be validated, otherwise it causes disconnect. Anyway, back to nice guy syndrome. So um, most of us, uh, and if, you know, if you've recognized the term nice guy syndrome, maybe if you read the book or you just recognize in yourself, oh shit, like this mode of behavior of being really sweet and being really placating and being unmasculine. Uh, it doesn't get me anywhere. Like women don't like me. Uh, I'm. I recognize. Oh shit! I'm a beta male, and that was like my recognition. It's like, oh shit! I didn't. I didn't know. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was like, oh shit! There's a pecking order between men, and I'm very close to the bottom. Damn! How did this happen? And I was. It's very easy to get angry at your upbringing, angry at your parents, angry at society. Um, but I mean, that doesn't fix anything. The anger doesn't fix anything. It's just recognizing. Oh shit! Maybe you've been conditioned the wrong way in a way that doesn't work. The next step for most, uh, and actually one thing with the sex stuff is that the reason why so much of this comes out during puberty and, and like sex is kind of like, a, uh, it brings us back to natural truth, not to say that nature is always the way we should be, but it is not natural for a testosterone-driven individual to be supplicating deferring. Um, just, I'm a masculine individual, right? Someone who's biology drives them to um, be affected behaviorally by testosterone, which is biological males. Uh, actually, I don't even want to say that as much because I mean, a lot of this might apply to certain types of lesbians. Like I'm just saying anyone driven by testosterone, um, testosterone has us behave in certain ways. And I, I reference the book, The Virility Paradox a lot because it is full of all these studies of what testosterone actually does to our behavior. And you can see it's a lot of it is what we typically consider masculine. So you inject testosterone into a man, woman, or child, they will have better boundaries. They will be more assertive. They will be more headstrong. They will be more focused on things. And that is natural. Uh, they will also be more aggressive and violent, and not to say that you should be aggressive and violent, but it's recognizing that the impulse is pure. The impulse is 
how our bodies want to behave. And if you don't validate the impulse, you're going to create some sort of turmoil. Also, this natural impulse, the sex drive, has evolved for millions of years to get laid, right? The reproductive system specifically and all the behaviors that come off of the reproductive system um, have evolved because certain behaviors that testosterone drives you to do um, are what the opposite sex finds attractive. Um, so this is where we enter stage two, um, where the nice guy is like, oh shit, all of this nice guy stuff that I've learned is not natural. It's not pure. It, it doesn't get me laid. It doesn't get me validated. It doesn't get me respected. Um, it makes me a beta male. If I want to be respected and loved and acquire sex and all the things that most men desire, I need to do the opposite. Now, I think this is kind of a necessary stage. It's possible that maybe someone who's like super enlightened can skip step two and go to step three. I've never seen it before um, because there are negatives that come with going to this opposite. Um, but I don't know anybody who can just jump there. And I, I'm remembering um, a quote by Dan Bilzerian. Like if you've seen him on Instagram, he's the billionaire poker player who always has models and yachts and guns in his Instagram feed, like super hyper masculine stuff. He, he had a quote, I think it was on Joe Rogan, where he was, I don't, I don't remember verbatim, but he was saying something like, of course money and women will not make you truly happy. But until you can get it, you can't really talk or you don't really know. It's like very easy for a beta male guy who can't get laid to look at a guy like Dan Bilzerian or look at a guy who gets a lot of women and be like, oh, well, he's, uh, he's blah, blah, blah. He's a misogynist. He's, uh, he's not actually happy. He's doing it to feed a hungry girl. And all those things might be true, but look at where that guy's at. Like he can't eat, he doesn't even have the potency to make that choice. And that's not morality, right? This goes back to the, the lesson of the movie Clockwork Orange. If you don't have a choice, you can't, I, morality requires choice. Like you're not being a good person if you're forced to do the thing that's good. Um, so it's important to have that ability. So which is why I think stage two, even though it has some negatives, is kind of a required stage in a man's hero's journey. He's maybe, not that they say that guy has to be an asshole, but this, that's often what happens. Um, and this is what, this is essentially the crux of the red pill community where a lot of it is reclaiming hyper-masculinity to make up for the fact that they were hyper-beta effeminate guys when they were younger. They accepted that. If you, the thing that I strongly dislike about the red pill community is that there's a lot of misogyny there. Uh, there's a lot of, um, they use rationality in a very pure or I shouldn't say pure, in a, in a positive way, like they look at the facts of biology and the facts of mating. And, and, um, but then often you'll see in, in red pill um, literature of like, oh, look, women behave this way, or women respect you more when you do this, or women, uh, women say one thing and then do another. That's like a big thing that they point out, which is true. Uh, I don't, you know, it is true a, a lot of times. Any, anybody who is, you know, quote unquote feminine, who's driven more by oxytocin, driven more by her feelings, uh, her emotional reality is more, um, especially when she's in her emotions or she's emotionally activated, what she emotionally perceives kind of um, uh, overrides her rational perception, which frustrates a lot of guys. The problem is the red pill community takes this as a reason to not respect women or never uh, trust them or treat them like, uh, treat them like, like uh, animals are trying to train. And I'm not saying this for moral reasons. I'm not saying like, oh, you should do this because it's nice to be nice. No, I'm just saying that if you take on this dogma, you will always remain hard. If you think of stage one as like being too soft, 
stage two, one of the results of it, if you stay in it too long, is you can get too hard. And I'll speak for myself here, like around uh, early puberty, uh, I fell very and deeply in love with uh, one of my classmates. I, common experience for 14 year olds. Um, I actually I fell in love with her specifically if I were to psychoanalyze myself because she was one of the few girls who liked me even when I was exhibiting weak behavior, right? I was very shy, I was very uh, timid, um, I avoided tension all the time, but like this one girl uh, seemed to be friendly to me and like me anyway. So of course, what does a nice guy do? He clings to her, he attaches to her, he thinks, oh, she must be my uh, one true love, or I, I wrote poetry, I wrote songs about her, I fantasized about Happy ever, happily, happy ever after with her, and I think a lot of guys when they're young, a lot of people when they're young, uh, do this. But of course, even though she was nice to me, uh, you know, I was I was very much in the friend zone. I didn't get respect because I was doing all these nice things that made me feel harmless, uh, seem harmless. But harmless is not sexy. So of course, uh, my heart gets broken. I'm I'm really grateful that red pill didn't exist because if I had come across red pill and that kind of stuff or MGTOW stuff, when I was heartbroken, I could have justified my heartbreak as a reason to hate women. I'm really glad that I wasn't exposed to that, but I think if I look at a lot of the guys who are super misogynistic in that world, you know, to just see see where the, the motives were, how they arrived to that, in the same way we can see how uh, militant, angry feminists arrive to their conclusions, is because of pain, right? Um, even like uh, one of the books that I think it was one of the best red pill books, uh, The Rational Male. It's full of very like uh, cold hard facts about how men and women behave um, on a on a primal biological level. Um, and I recommend it to my clients who are very deep in that stage one of like being way too soft and their ideologies are all fucked up and they still believe that the way to be loved and respected a good man is to be super soft and supplicating. I, I'm like, dude, read this book because it's full of like a lot of justifications for being harder. Um, the problem is, is that he then justifies that with reasons to hate women. And, and if you know his backstory, which I mean, I'll tell you, like uh, Rolo got into like his work of writing about stuff that became Red Pill eventually because his brother was a super nice guy. Uh, I don't know the exact details, but his, his brother uh, got taken advantage of by a woman in a very extreme way and um, ended up committing suicide over it. Over it. So obviously that uh, broke the heart of Rolo and he hardened against women and he has this view of like uh, women can't be trusted and women um, are no good. I mean, there's, new, there's nuances to that. But again, usually um, ideological statements are missing nuance. They're just like, women can't be trusted, blam. Um, so anyway, all right, so back to the, the stage two of the nice guy's journey. Very often it's like a bending the paper backwards, which is like an idea of like, if you have this crease and you can think of this crease as um, conditioning, this crease has made you become a nice guy, be weak, be beta, participation trophy culture. Well, if you, if you just flatten it out, uh, well, it's not going to be straight, right? In order to flatten the page out, you have to bend the paper backwards and go to the other extreme and you cancel out that, um, cancel out that crease and then you can come to a flat paper, which is our healthy, we call healthy masculinity. Um, so a lot of guys, and myself included, learned to be harder. Even with the same girl when I was in high school, I was like, oh, actually, if I'm a little meaner to her, she respects me. And, you know, uh, she broke my heart when I was... Uh, 
uh, a sophomore. We ended up dating for a short bit when I was a senior because when I was a junior, I ended up becoming an asshole. I think it might have been a necessary stage. Is there a way to skip that stage? I'm not sure, but uh, you know, for a guy who's super soft and, and beta, I would recommend being a little harder. Um, but it's, it's important to make sure that you don't use it to justify hate. Anyway. Um, oh, and here's one of the, the negatives. If, if I'm honest, and this is one of the things that I came across myself like through lots of contemplation and introspection during quarantine, is that uh, being harder, learning how to uh, follow biological um, uh, behaviors that allow women to feel safer and trust me and love me more um, has been great. It's been way better than being um, a sad, lonely, frustrated chump, to use old pickup terms. Uh, if I'm honest, I haven't opened up my heart as much as when I was 15. Even though it was puppy love, even though it was super... Um, you know, it's it totally like kind of adolescent fantasy and maybe immature in many ways and not necessarily real. I don't think we were like destined for anything in reality. It was all my, my uh, pubescent brain blowing things out of proportion, which is what nice guys do often. If I'm honest, I haven't opened up my heart as much since. And I've been with a lot of amazing women. And I'm noticing now I'm 32, like... It's not bad. I've ha I've enjoyed my life. I I have had fun. I prefer this than the than stage one, but there there has been something I'm feeling I'm missing, and I think uh, if I'm honest, this closed-heartedness has kind of directed me in weird ways in my relationships that I've only recognized recently are still remnants of nice guy syndrome. Because like nice guy syndrome, essentially, I mean it's a term that we use colloquially now, but essentially it's uh, and it's it's insecurity. It's like uh, insecurity of like, I need to modify my behavior to match the environment, and uh, which is what is the root cause of early stage nice guy syndrome of like, oh, I need to be soft and supplicating, but even later stage nice guy syndrome of like, oh, I need to be hard and, uh, and aloof and cool to be liked. That's also modifying your nature. Like you're still not being pure. It's like you might have gone from this conditioning to switching over to this conditioning because this conditioning gets you laid more. But in order to be really true to yourself, you're still missing something. And um, Michael Pariser in the podcast last week, he, he called me out on this because um, I, I pointed out like, yeah, you know, I still fall in love, right? I still like reach out for connection. I recognize I do want to be truly intimate. I, I want to break through the superficial. And according to my perceptions I thought I had been doing but he pointed out like well you move in with women really quickly and I'm like yeah and I'm like you like commit yourself really quickly and like yeah I mean that's me I'm being free with my my love and expression he's like yeah I mean that's that's just that's another form of nice guy syndrome that's like me unconsciously thinking oh if she finds out who I really am she won't like me so I better lock her down or like even if I'm if I'm really honest, like even some of the things I've invested a lot of time and money in learning, like sex skills, um, how to please a woman in bed, how to please a woman on a first date, all the things that we're working on for good reason, right? Because even though all, all of this is really about ourselves, if you're a straight guy, women are the are the greatest pain point and marker of uh, of our feedback, right? Like if we do this and we get laid, we're like, oh, that must be good. Right? And, and there's truth to that, right? Like women are attracted to certain virtues um, that are more positive. But if I'm honest, I'm like, I 
on some level haven't thought I was enough by myself, so I've had to learn all these things to be liked. Whether it's something like learning how to empathize, or learning how to give a woman an orgasm, or or something, and or or, or learning or uh, saying I love you and like loving them, even though the the emotion is pure, I often recognize that I've done this sooner, maybe because of some unconscious need to like attach myself to someone, which goes back to early childhood, and I see this in a lot of guys. Um, I. Anyway, so so more on this, the stage two. Um, if you if you caught my episode on Prometheus Rising, where I talk about the neural circuits, stage one is like the circuit one infant level consciousness, where we're feeling helpless and we're doing whatever will get the feminine to take care of us. So we do whatever will get mommy to to give us more validation. Um, stage two is the toddler level, where we learn to stand up for ourselves. This is kind of a metaphorical thing. We 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 start to use our backbone. We have a spine. And we, we stand up to the feminine. So like around two years old, two-year-olds talk back to their parents. Two-year-olds say no. Two-year-olds um, uh, try to find their own way that not, is not necessarily what mommy uh, is saying. Now, with extreme nice guy syndrome, and I think this is rooted in feminism uh, or certain kinds of feminism, uh, feminism has taken the boy who went from infant level of dependency to toddler level of defiance and pushed them back down to infant level of dependency. And this is something went over more extensively in the mother wound episode, the mother complex episode, where a lot of guys with mother complexes, like some sort of unhealthy uh, attachment to the feminism, uh, to the feminine, um, or to women, or maybe to their literal mother, uh, they're stuck in this helpless mode. So they never stand up to the feminine. Like they become, and I think uh, leftist media right now is heavily doing this to everyone in society. It's like, no, if you stand up, you're wrong. Everyone needs to, it pushes people back into helplessness, which can be seen as the victim nature. It can be seen as, I mean, on an ideological level of the state having to take care of us, right? Like an extreme, I'm not trying to say what po political ideal is best, but like extreme socialism or extreme Marxism is basically infant level consciousness of like all people are helpless so the state should take care of us right um hyper capitalists like ayn rand people are like super in toddler nature we're like we don't need the state we don't need mom and dad we're all independent right like a lot of two-year-olds like think like oh i'm independent um early stage nice guy syndrome is essentially you've been conditioned to force back down to infant level helplessness which is why guys with extreme nice guy syndrome many guys in this group that i've spoken with outside of the group um they're literally afraid of what their mom will think or their parents will think, so they don't do what they want. Uh, they, uh, they're afraid of what social media will think. They're afraid of what their friends will think. That fear of the outside is an infant level fear, right? Toddlers don't have that fear. A lot of us will relearn that fear when we're older because of, of society. Which is why if you look at red pill, uh, red pill solutions, and I, I think this is not, not, I'm not, this is actually good. It's simple. It, it brings us back to toddler defiance. If you look at some of the red pill rants, it sounds like a toddler complaining about mommy. Um, but their, their prescription, I think, is a good tool for someone moving through the stage. And basically, if you look at red pill forums, they all say three things. Lift, shut the fuck up, and read the sidebar. The sidebar is their literature. And uh, yeah, for someone who is stuck in infant level helplessness, this is a great thing. This is a useful thing to do. Uh, lift weights because it's very, when your body is strong, you produce more testosterone, but also it's hard to see yourself as a helpless little boy when your body is physically strong, right? Not that any of us need to go out and go into fights. I, I think uh, learning martial arts is really great for your sanity, 
and your, your confidence, but you don't have to even do that. But when you're, when you're phys- when you feel physically strong, it's kind of hard to feel like a bitch at the same time. You know, our, our bodies and minds are not as separate as most of our, uh, what we think. Um, the shut the fuck up piece is like basically stop complaining, stop being like an infant level victim who's like complaining about everything. Stop complaining about women. Stop complaining about your uh, your parental and upbringing. The reason why I want to spend time in this episode understanding the justifications of like why feminism uh, had this imperative and why uh, leftist media has this imperative and why your parents might have done this and why red peel guys like do this is because if you can understand where people are coming from, you don't have to. You can, if you can have a little bit of compassion for people who have mistreated you, you can let go of your resentment much more easily. If you hold on to that resentment, you can't move on to the next level, um, which is where I think a lot of Red Pill guys get stuck because they end up in a way that I have as well where you kind of close off part of your heart to protect yourself, but then you're not open anymore and you're missing out on something. Um, and, uh, oh, and then the final piece is read. Uh, I think one of the worst things for the mind right now, and it's something that like social media puts you in a state that drives you to infant level consciousness. It's really unhealthy for everyone. It's particularly unhealthy for men because the masculine is the infant level consciousness is a more feminine feminist fem excuse me. The infant level consciousness is a more effeminate state. Um, infancy is also receptivity. It's like you're you're. Infants are more driven by oxytocin, which is the hormone that drives most feminine behavior. Um, and social media forces you that way. For, social media gives you a lot of clickbaity things. Like social media is kind of like you put an infant under a mobile where it has like the, the swirly things. The infant can go goo goo gaga and stuff. Your, your Facebook feed is kind of like that too. You're like, it's just like, oh yeah, new thing, new thing, new thing, new thing. It's not even that it's interesting maybe one out of ten things on social media is interesting but it's like yeah I mean there's a part of you that when you're an infant you want to be curious and look at everything and social media puts us back into that state also a lot of the content of social media uh, throws us into anxiety anxiety is infant level if you're ever feeling anxious you drop down to infant level um, and, and there's a lot of shaming going on um, so one of the solutions here is you got to be selfish. So I'm going to go into the synthesis part, um, but I'm going to end stage two, which is understanding that if you are in stage one where you're being super beta, stage two is better, right? In stage two, you'll at least get respect. Uh, you will, um, you're more likely to be attractive to women, which is why the red pill stuff does work or pick up or any of these things that some might say is like a little too hard. Even I would say is like a little too hard and angry and cold and um, Machiavellian. Uh, it is better than stage one um, because at least you have potency, right? Um, and women, the reason why a lot of that stuff works is that uh, on a primal level, women would rather be with a strong asshole than a weak, nice guy. And for very understandable biological reasons, in Paleolithic times, a really sweet, nice guy will get his ass handed to him by the strong asshole, and the strong asshole will take her anyway. So she might as well go with the strong asshole. Um, and it's actually, this is one of, the, one of the darker parts of Rolo's book that kind of stung me a little bit, um, which is, uh, he has this idea of war brides. War brides is like, I don't know if it's an anthropological term, but it's something that's been documented in, in humans, is that when... Uh, an invading tri- tribe of barbarians would kill all the men in a tribe and claim all the women as theirs 
At first, of course, the woman would be upset, like, oh my God, you killed my husband and my sons and my father, and now you're the conqueror, right? Like, kind of like Khal uh, Drogo. Uh, you know, you conquered everyone, you've stolen me, you're raping me now. But it's been a phenomenon that's been documented that, that the same woman will eventually fall in love with her captor. It's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome. And, he, and Rolo calls this war brides. It's kind of a dark thing that has been documented well. And a lot of guys would use this as justification of like, oh, women can't be trusted. Like, it's kind of a heartbreaking thing to think like if a, if a barbarian came and, and killed you, your wife would eventually fall in love with him. Um, this all happens on a primal level, right? And, uh, but, but if you look at it, there's an evolutionary reason why. Like if, I mean, our genes are not always looking out for our best interests. Our genes just want to propagate. If a woman is in the situation where uh, her support network has just been killed, the, her provider of sperm has just been killed, and she's with someone who is not going to have that happen to him, it's actually evolutionarily a good strategy for procreation to fall in love with him and become attached to him. It's kind of a dark thing. I mean, I'm not justifying anything with it, but it is, like, it is one of the reasons why strength is more important than niceness. But it's not a place you want to get stuck not for moral reasons, but because if you're stuck in this hard-ass mode, you're not going to be settled either, right? Um, it's very cortisol-inducing and um, uh, aggr or it takes a lot of energy to game your wife all the time. It takes a lot of energy to like constantly be thinking of like uh, plays, whereas like a truly secure guy doesn't have to think about it, right? It's like the whole thing with pickup techniques. If you have to think of pickup techniques, then you don't believe that you're inherently attractive, right? A really attractive guy, a Ryan Gosling, doesn't think about stuff like that. Obviously, he's very good looking, but like anybody who's like really secure in his attractiveness and his respect and who he is as a person doesn't have to think about this stuff. However, if you've been for a while to recondition yourself, which brings us to stage three, um, and I and. Some of the stuff I'm going to share now, I, I did share in the Dark Masculine episode of Healing Sexual Shame because these things are, are kind of one and the same. Nice Guy Syndrome uh, and shame, they, they are interwoven. But the first thing, and it refers to the Dark Masculine, is learning how to um, uh, embrace pure emotion. Someone's asking if I could do a summary of all the resources I mentioned. Yeah, I'll probably type that in the comments or I might, I might list them at the end of the episode. I'll do both, actually. Um, so pure emotion, this is one of the reasons why movies like Fight Club are so compelling to men, uh, shows like Breaking Bad, or the idea of Breaking Bad, like if you've watched Breaking Bad, if you remember what Breaking Bad, to, to break bad is to like shatter your persona, your, your external thing, right, you know, uh, and then do something crazy, something crazy and instinctual, right, something crazy and... Uh, demonic in a sense i mean demonic meaning coming from your lower um lower nervous system rather than your higher rationality so like in fight club if you've seen fight club spoiler alert you should have seen it by now um the guy is like living this super fake life where he's bought completely into consumerist propaganda he's working in a boring office job to to collect money just to buy ikea furniture or whatever and he's been such he's gone so fake that it's fucking his life up um he's uh uh, he can't sleep, he can't live, he can't connect with anyone. So he has like this mental split where he envisions Tyler Durden, a totally, he's a, Tyler Durden's a figment of his imagination that embodies all the things that is actually true to him. So like the, the famous line that uh, Brad Pitt says in the movie is, 
uh, I look the way you want to look, I fuck the way you want to fuck, I am the way you want to be, because uh, Ed Norton's character, the actual protagonist, has become so fake, right? Um, so I would say this first part of synthesis is you, you need to embrace pure emotion. Um, Red Pill does this in kind of an artificial way, which is maybe necessary for a lot of guys, because like if you've acted fake for so long, you might not know what natural is. Um, this is a thing that they... Uh, Talk about an Alexander technique, which is a, a bodywork uh, technique of like creating a true alignment in your body again. A thing that they always say is like, if you've had terrible posture your whole life, what feels like a, a straight back is not. Like if you if you've hunched over your for for ten years, um, you might think, oh, my back is straight, but really you're like this. It's like, no, my back is straight. It feels straight, but like everyone looking at you is like, no, that's not straight because what's actually straight doesn't, uh, or actually is aligned, doesn't actually feel right to you because you've been twisted so much that you can't trust your feelings. So learning how to embrace that emotion can be very uh, challenging. It's like a lot of guys, even guys in this group have posted like, I don't know what I want. Like I'm trying to, re I realize intellectually I need to reconnect to my desire, but I don't know what it is. Um, someone just asked, can I clarify the three stages? Uh, stage one, is the beta male nature. I'd say it's infinite level of consciousness where you're uh, supplicating your instincts in order to be validated by the outside. Stage two is an antithesis to that. Stage two happens usually when a guy realizes, oh, all that typical nice guy stuff um, doesn't work. It doesn't get me laid, doesn't get me respected. In fact, it gives me the opposite. So they, they do the opposite. They become an asshole. They become very Machiavellian. They learn all these techniques to become, uh, to dominate and like domination, domination. That's toddler level of consciousness where you're basically trying really hard to be an alpha. And again, as I mentioned, this is better than being a beta, but it comes with um, negative uh, byproducts where it's like you're always going to be on edge. Like some of these guys, even like Rolo, when he talks about his relationship, I don't know what his actual marriage is like. Well, firstly, a lot of these red pill guys get divorced. Even like the red pill guys who like give advice on marriage, a lot of them get divorced. Um, and I can only imagine a lot of them get divorced because they take this hard ass nature. There's this guy, I'm not going to say his name, but he's well known in the red pill community. Um, and I've met him and he's, he's a very hyper rational guy. And he... You know, and he is a man's man and he does a lot of hyper-masculine things, but he's such a hard ass. And um, he had this beautiful wife, gamed her and all that stuff, he used to talk about it in his conventions. And then at some point he got divorced and he went on this really long, like months long rant about hating women and how women are so terrible. And like when I'm looking at this, I'm like, man, this is, uh, all of this is just more nice guy syndrome, right? I didn't think in those terms at the time, but like all this is just, his insecurity, like all that stuff he was trying to compensate for, but being such a hard ass actually pushed his wife away because you can't be a hard ass and be connected at the same time. Um, so anyway, that, that's stage two. And stage three is a synthesis where you have this balance where you're not being supplicating, you're having your boundaries, um, but you're not being an asshole. You're actually expanding. And I want to talk about the synthesis and I'll, I'll speak on for myself. I thought I was here already, if I'm honest, but I noticed I had certain behaviors because basically... Um, if you don't heal the wounds that were created by stage one, even if you put a, you know, if even if you grow a callus over the wound in stage two, the wound is still there. And as an example for myself, like I was super beta supplicating, as I mentioned, um, I learned to be another way in a way that women like me more. I've modified behavior to get better feedback from the environment. Um, 
But then there's this thing that's that, and, and, and I, I've never, I've never, I thankfully have never hated women, at least not consciously. Um, and I, th- I've, I've thought of myself as a good guy. I still think I'm a good guy, but I have by accident, you know, I've broken hearts. I've unintentionally um, made women feel bad because I was trying to hold my boundaries and not to say that I was right or wrong, but it has embedded me with some guilt because even if I knew I was doing the right thing, if, if her reality is that I'm an asshole, which is what most people will resort to if you break their heart, they're like, oh, you're an asshole. Um, may or may not be true, but that's usually what a, a person will say when their heart is being broken. It would seep in, and because I had that insecurity still, it got into to me. And if um, the thing I realized recently during quarantine is that every single relationship I've ever been in, I've been coerced into. <laughs> I've been guilted into. It's like so many women have hooked me with the same exact line, and it's not to blame them at all, because this is really my issue, right? So many women have thrown this idea at me that if I was a real man, I would love them. If I was uh, really evolved, I would learn how to love them. A lot of women have literally said to me, you don't realize how much you actually love me. And because I had this guilt and insecurity, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe they're right. Even though, even if though, like, looking back, I could be like, well, there's nothing wrong with her, but I didn't really want to date her. I didn't really want to date her. I didn't really want to be in that relationship. Um, so I ended up, I've actually ended up causing more harm in women by trying to go along with this thing that wasn't really me because it was fake. And then when I realized, oh, shit, when I take the brakes, I'm like, oh, shit, this is like the wrong way to behave. I need to get out of here. I end up hurting her worse. So like even my, even though I had good intentions, like good intentions in quotes, um, because of my nice guy insecurities, because I was afraid of making her feel a little bit bad by saying no, I made her feel a lot bad by leading her into a relationship and then ejecting. Um, that's my own little karmic thing I'm dealing with. But if I was really in stage three, I'd be able to uh, recognize my true impulses and speak from that place without getting shamed into something or hopping on someone else's reality. I'm referencing a lot of episodes that I'm going to list. I'm uh, in reality dominance episode. I talked about that a lot of like uh, whose whose reality has the greater gravity. I'll list all of these at the end. Um, but the thing that uh, the solution to this, right? Because if you are in a reality, if you're in a situation where you perceive the world to be this way and she perceives the world to be that way or, or something else, or anybody, any discussion, a political discussion, arguments, uh, a relationship thing, whatever, um, I, the way out of it is not to try to fight them, right? I spoke about this in the Reality Dominance episode. If you live at this zero-sum level of like one of us has to be right, one of us has to be wrong, the only way to really resolve that is to kill your opponent, which is why so many wars have been fought over semantical distinctions, which from a rationalist perspective is ridiculous, but from a primal circuit two perspective, like only one of us can be right. Uh, at some point, it break, you know, some point violence usually occurs. Anyway. Uh, the way out of that and what I, what I think is the, the key to true consensual dominance is to zoom above this zero-sum level of two belligerents to, to recognizing the top-down of like, here we are in this system, what works for us? And I think this is like the most uh, fundamental leadership principle, the most fundamental consensual dominance principle. And I would actually bring this to the father nature when it comes to the masculine archetype. Uh, the expression of this is the father nature, Zeus, uh, God the Father, uh, Allah, I don't know. I mean, pick your, pick your deity, right? Uh, Shiva, whatever. Um, 
the father nature, the father nature and the king nature, the same thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's a masculine consciousness that can see the entire system, like the entire realm as mine, as, as uh, my responsibility, right? It's not about mine in a tyrannical sense of like, everyone needs to listen to me. It's like, let me figure out what is actually best for the realm. So in a, in a, in a relationship or an argument or I mean, this is what parents should do. I mean, I know I'm saying this from someone who doesn't have kids, but like, you know, healthy parenting, if you look at yourself and your op opponent, you know, someone who wants something else and you don't want to give it to them and you don't know what's right. If you look, if you look at both of yourselves as your children or someone's children, and you try to take this top down perspective, what is best for the system and make your decisions that way. Because if you're truly in integrity, there might be situations where you're like, okay, I, I want this and she wants this, but you know what? The good of all of us is closer to what she wants. Or it might be, we want different things, but what's actually best for us, even though she doesn't believe this, is to do this thing. Or maybe it's a third thing that you haven't thought of. And you know, going back to my relationship patterns, if I actually took that perspective and if I didn't get triggered by my own insecurities by someone saying this other thing, I probably would have would have made decisions that wouldn't have stuck me in that way. Like, um, I don't mean any. I, I should have left my last relationship way sooner, but I stayed in because she made a good, she made really good points of why I should stay, and she made points that um, triggered my own insecurities about like my fear of being an asshole or my fear of being disliked. It's like when she would throw this stuff up, um, that triggered my fear of being a perpetrator. I kind of went along with her reality at times where I probably shouldn't. It was actually bad for the both of us for me to do that because it created more heartbreak in her. It created more uh, pain in me. We should have went a different direction. And I, I failed both of us by not doing what was right for the entire system, for the entire realm. I, I, I kind of abandoned or I didn't uh, tap into my father nature. Um, and I want to speak more about this father thing because um, uh, this is... I think one of the crises of masculinity, I mean, on a, on a sociological level, um, the fatherless homes, I'm going to actually one more thing on the um, embracing pure emotion is that with that, you have to be willing to take shit from people. Um, this is one of the things that I think my generation and younger, uh, we suck at. And I think social media is partly to blame because when, when you're anyone who, you know, is younger than 35, uh, was a young person with social media and social media was like in our faces and like telling us this and that before we discovered ourselves, right? Uh, we didn't get that rite of passage where we got to discover like who we really are inside. So like we're getting pulled this way, like leftist media sends us this way and rightist media sends us this way and we don't really know what we think. And um, this shaming that comes from the outside, it makes it really hard to discover who we are and you have to be willing to take shit. And, and uh, I spoke about this in the dark, I spoke about this in a lot of episodes that um, you know, strengthening your body, making yourself feel good is so important and like understanding selfish desire and, and just using the phrase, I want, I want, I want is so critical to being a good man in the world. Why? Because if you're going back and forth, if you're so influenced by taking shit from, uh, by the shit people give you, you're going to get swayed very easily if you don't know yourself. And I'll, uh, one example is like, so I get trolled a fair amount, um, because of my, me talking about being in a cult, like. If, uh, it's another episode uh, that I've had about when I was in a matriarchal sex cult. And a lot of people get angry at me because I talk about sexual polarity. I, I say, like, this is feminine and this is masculine. That's taboo to some people. And I also speak about my cult experience in a partially positive way. I mean, a lot of terrible things happen there, but a lot of positive things happen there, too. And most people's ideological minds can't accept nuance. 
So I, I get comments and I get emails from people calling me an asshole and misogynist and uh, this this thing, people are calling me a cult leader now. I mean, a cult leader of what, right? People calling me a cult leader uh, because I, I, I still believe in certain uh, elements that I talk about in these podcasts that I think are true about sexual polarity and how a man should behave. Anyway, I get a lot of shit. Usually I don't care, but um, whenever I let my body get depressed or whenever I start to behave in a way that is not in line with myself, I become a little more vulnerable to trolling. And I've noticed like I, I um, had to get up at 4 a.m. recently to catch a flight and then I happened to see a mean YouTube comment and for some reason it really stung because I let my body get depressed and, and in that like physical depression, like my body was a little low energy, I became a lot more susceptible to influence. I talked about this also in the um, one of the recent episodes on compulsive behavior and like why guys shouldn't jerk off too much. Like when a guy is coming too much, his body literally depresses and he becomes more vulnerable to negative influences. So what one of the reasons why you shouldn't jerk off to porn too much. Anyway, all right, we're going to end on the father nature um, because we, we know this, and I just saw this uh, documentary called Uncle Tom. It was about black conservatives and uh, you know controversial documentary. But one of the points they made that I, I highly agree with is that one of the crises for men, but one of the crises largely for the black community, I mean, they're speaking mostly for the black, black American community, um, was that was the fatherless homes. And I'm not saying I agree with this point, but it, it probably is true. I don't know, it might be true. They made a good point. In the documentary, they were saying that the welfare state incentivized... Um, young black men who just had children to not have to stick around. Uh, and they, they go into it. I'm not saying that I, I believe that 100% or not, but uh, it, it, if that is true, um, it's created all these fatherless homes, particularly in the black community, which has led to um, higher crime rates and lower success rates and drop out, all, all the negative things that are true now. And one of the points of this, uh, this, this documentary was that um, uh, by coddling um, African-Americans, They've actually disempowered them further and put them in a position where they're no longer standing up. And this is like kind of like a cultural nice guy syndrome. It's like you got a lot of free money so they can stay at the helpless infant level and they never learn how to grow the backbone and succeed. That was the argument of the, the book I think, or the, the documentary. I think that's true for men right now where there's been so much coddling um, with participation trophy culture and uh, effeminizing men and validating boys for unnatural impulses, right? Because like there are certain testosterone-driven impulses that are natural to boys. Not to say that we need to go around punching each other um, or like being hyper-competitive, but like competition and determination and taking on challenges and being strong and having boundaries and saying no and uh, telling people what to do sometimes, or at least like directing your own reality is so critical to testosterone. And I talk about the winner effect so often, like if you are not perceiving that you are winning contests in your life, your androgen system literally depresses. Like you need to perceive that you're taking on challenges and winning for you to feel like a man. This is on a pure biological level. Like your testosterone system requires this. Anyway, the father nature comes from expanding and including the father nature is one expression of the masculine archetype or you can say it's, it's one of the masculine archetypes. And um, in a, for you to take a zoomed out, it's my last point here. For you to take a zoomed out view of yourself and an individual or you and your kids or you and your coworkers or you and your teammates or even you and your boss in certain cases or you and your friends or you and your society or you and your country. Um, for you to be able to take that zoomed out view of like what is best for all of us. Let me help direct the team or the group to what is best for all of us. You have to come from a place of abundance. 
Most of us drop down into zero-sum reality where each of us are competing players because of scarcity. This is true when we have scarcity in women. Um, a lot of guys who mistreat women, or a lot of the Me Too situations, if you remember all the Me Too things that were listed, the ones that were questionable, obviously like um, Harvey Weinstein, complete asshole. Like, I'm not, but like, there's some guys who got ousted, like I'm thinking Aziz Ansari, he didn't behave right in his situation. Like, he basically misread uh, a woman's um, desire. And she wasn't very clear either. I, mean, I don't think, I'm not defending him. I was actually disappointed in Aziz, not because I thought he was an asshole, but because I saw how bad his game is. If, if the story was true, like, he really has bad game. Or, like, he did all those things because he misread the signals from a woman because he's in scarcity, which I was surprised by. A famous comedian, I thought he gets a lot of ass. Um, but anyone who's in a scarcity mentality is going to do things that feel justified, truly feel justified, because if I don't have enough money, then of course I'm justified in stealing. If I don't have enough sex or I don't have enough love, of course maybe I'll lie or manipulate to get into your pants. Um, and you can, you can pick anything that you, f you perceive that you don't have enough for yourself. So in order to truly take the father nature, you need to perceive abundance. And abundance uh, doesn't come from necessarily having a lot because there are billionaires who um, feel money scarcity. There are um, guys in the pickup community who've laid 500 women, but they still get all flustered or like they become like super anxious around a woman they could sleep with because they don't feel like they have enough still and they do weird things. Um, abundance is the perception that abundance is trust in the future. It is trust that I don't have to cut corners to make this money. I don't have to cut corners to get in this woman's pants. There will be more money and there will be more sex in the future. I don't have to compromise myself as an individual to get what I want. Um, abundance is trust in the future. Scarcity is distrust in the future. It's like I need to do this thing that is against my own integrity because I don't know when I'm going to eat again, or I don't know the next opportunity I'll have to get laid, so I have to do whatever I can to get in this woman's pants. All of the negatives in, in, in masculine expression come from this perception of I'm not going to have enough. Beta males always have fear of the outside. Uh, when we go to back to stage one, a beta male is stuck in infant level consciousness where he's afraid to leave the womb. And you know, a lot of guys I speak to who are afraid to take a leap of faith in a way that... Um, is true for them. Like they want to travel the world, but they're afraid to leave. They want to quit their job, but they're afraid. They want to uh, go have a, an adventure with wild women, but they're afraid of what their family will think or their friends will think. It's this basic like primal fear of leaving the womb. It's like this distrust of what's outside of the safety net of your mom's belly, right? You have to get out of that. And that comes from trusting that there will be more in the future, right? Like a guy who's truly secure with women or a guy who's truly secure in business or with money doesn't have to cut corner because he knows there will be enough for me, right? I don't have to do this. So th th this is the problem with stage two is that the red pill guys go super hard ass. They go hyper ma Machiavellian, super aggro sometimes because they're afraid that if I don't do this, there won't be more for me in the future. And I'll speak for myself because I'm partially in this camp. I have one foot in that camp at least, which is like I have um, compromised myself in relationships because I felt like well, if I don't take this opportunity, like here's this woman, uh, this is probably not the right thing for me, but if I don't take this opportunity, it might not come around again. And I've, I've not necessarily thought that like in that conscious terms, but I've look, look back at my behavior, I've basically behaved in line with that ideology, which is again, a scarcity ideology because a true alpha, a true 
father completely trusts the future. He completely trusts that he's going to be taken care of. And this can this can go into the uh, this can kind of seem spiritual, where you you know, uh, there I think spirituality is a, a great mechanism for developing that trust because if you look at if you look at life from like red pill eyes of like cold calculating, uh, purely material cause and effect, it can kind of be hard to justify how can I trust the future when like everyone there's a doggy dog world out here. This is kind of like extreme conservative politics. Like it's hard out there. People are screwing each other over. You know, this is why I have this tattoo prisoner's dilemma. Like people are incentivized to screw each other over. How can I have that? It does require some faith. And I think it is easier if you if you subscribe to a religion or you believe in a higher power that like, oh, I know that there's a greater father taking care of me, right? There's a uh, there's someone looking out for me. So I don't have to do things that hoard my wealth or hoard sex in order to feel loved and needed. I can do what is right for the collective. Um, yes, and I want to end on this. This is uh, related to the religion and the father nature. This is something that came to me during a recent LSD trip. I spoke about it uh, briefly in the last uh, solo episode I did. Um, but I was like working through like my purpose and like what I want to do in life. And I don't want to like pump out garbage into the internet, which seems to be what most people do. Not, I mean, that's me being resentful a little bit, but like, like, I don't want to be someone who just like pumps out stuff that I don't feel proud of. And then I thought about suffering and I went into this like egoless place that most people go when you trip hard enough. I had taken quite a bit of acid and I went from f having my own fears of like, but if I don't do this, I won't have enough money. If I don't do this, I won't grow my career, blah, blah, blah. And to like, just having like this like recognition that there are all these people suffering, right? And I just like, I felt that not, not from like, uh, you know, I just, I felt like, wow, there's so many people in, in way worse trips than me. There's so many people, you know, trapped where they, they can't get any love from any woman. They can't get ahead in their career. Like, it's like, they're just trapped and it's like so painful. And I just like, from that egoless perspective, I'm like, I just want to take all their pain. Like I can handle it. I just like want to take all their, all their suffering. And I was like, oh, this is the Jesus archetype, right? Like, I, and cause I, I grew up partially Catholic. I might talk about that in another episode. But um, I never understood the whole thing of like Jesus died for our sins. Like even from a, a, a Christian um, perspective, I never understood what did this guy being nailed to a cross have to do with my sins? Like, so he died, I can sin and get a free pass into heaven? Like, that's not true. Like, it, it never made sense to me what Jesus dying had to do with our sins. But then I, I thought about like just what, the, what it means to take someone's sins or take someone's suffering. We think of sin in a karmic level, which is not really Christian, but we think of sin in, in a karmic level of like, you do this, you will get punished for it. Or it'll come around back to you. We can see this in cause and effect. Like, you act fake and you, you placate and you put on this uh, pussy hat and like supplicate to women just to get into their pants. They're not actually going to like you. That is your karmic backlash for being fake. On the other end, you become a hard ass and manipulative to get into women's pants. You will also get heartbroken or you will also block yourself from real intimacy and love. And that's your karmic backlash. Like, I never speak about morality from a pure moral perspective because I feel like morality abstracts you from real uh, cause and effect. Like, the reason why you shouldn't uh, stab people or steal from people or be an asshole is that it'll always come back to you. You, you try to steal money from someone, you keep doing that, someone's going to fight back, right? Like, that is your, that is your karma, right? That's the, that's the cause and effect, pure logical reason why you shouldn't be an asshole not for some like holy reason because <clears throat> like there's always going to be a badder guy out there than you um but anyway the jesus archetype if you think of sins that way i was like oh yeah i just i just want to like 
everyone just like I'll take all your sins. Like I don't want to. I don't have that. I mean, when my ego came back, uh, that kind of dissolved. I was like, no, I, I don't want. I don't want to take other people's problems too much. Oh, this is why I do the work I do. I do want to help people with their problems. Um, but I, I, I think this is highly related to what I think is a solution to nice guy syndrome. Whereas if you can get over your your shitty stage one conditioning, if you can have compassion, so you don't have to become a hard ass in stage two conditioning. In stage three, you enter in a a place where you can have trust in the future. Have trust that if you act right, you will be taken care of. And it might not be the thing that seems to get the immediate hit of validation by acting fake and soft. It might not be the thing that um, is like, I'm going to trick her into bed. It's like, I'm going to do what's actually right, what's actually good for the system. And what's good for the system does include women want to have sex. Women want to be around a strong, powerful man who can protect them and they can love securely. Uh, people want to be led. Kids want to have a strong father figure that can guide them. Like this is actually what's best for the system. It's not you domineering or being an asshole or being alpha for the sake of your own benefit. It's like human beings need true alpha males who are secure enough to lead and protect and guide and make love to in a way that everybody wins. If you can really act from the father nature top down rather than we are all players competing for the same resources. Um, that I think is the true synthesis of nice guy, the antidote of nice guy syndrome. So <clears throat> I hope this was useful. Uh, I know a lot of guys wanted to speak about this. Um, yeah. So I hope, I hope this was useful. I tried to add something new. Also, uh, I recommend checking out the podcast that just dropped on the Rondo podcast episode 88 with Dr. Michael Pariser. We had a great conversation about other aspects of nice guy syndrome. And if you want to go back into my archives, I have a conversation with Dr. Robert Glover, who wrote the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, um, which is also a great conversation. You can check those out. I promised someone that I'm going to list all the resources I mentioned. So let me go back through my notes and try to mention them. Uh, Certain podcasts that I mentioned of my own, um, the Dark Masculine Sexual Shame episode. Uh, I mean, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback of that helping guys, so I, I think that's something you should look at. If you find, if you're stuck in stage one and you're having trouble accessing your darkness, it's almost certainly attached to sexual shame. That sexual shame is driving unnatural behavior in you, um, and you have to connect to that. That's why, again, Fight Club, Breaking Bad, uh, anti heroes journeys tend to be so compelling to men. Um, uh, well, oh, I, m- I mentioned Prometheus Rising, which talks about the four neural circuits, the four basic neural circuits that drive our behavior. I reference them in a lot of episodes. You should uh, listen to that episode. It makes a lot of behavior make sense of how our, our behavioral systems don't always work together. Our first four behavioral systems evolved separately, and they kind of, um, uh, yeah, they can, they can cause inner conflict just by design. Uh, someone's asking, can you speak a little on what I'll call self-ejecting and allowing myself not to move forward and engaging the feminine and the potential p- pleasure there? Great question. Uh, I would go back to this idea of being afraid to leave the womb. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll speak about the winter effect again. Very simply is that it's a, pheno- a biological phenomenon where when you do something that has stakes, where you perceive, the stakes are subjective, right? Where you perceive there's an opportunity to, to win or lose. That is very critical for the androgen system 
like the, the, the system in your body that processes testosterone and the effects of it. If you don't put yourself into challenges, it actually atrophies, which is why guys who grew up never playing competitive sports tend to be less competitive when they grew up. So go, speaking to your specific thing about engaging in the feminine, <clears throat> a guy who self-ejects, and I self-ejected a lot, especially with women, um, but in a lot of things, um, is a fear of, of that. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's a fear of losing. It's a fear of the tension that comes from being in that state where you didn't, don't know if you won or lost. Because I, I know um, when I was first working on relating to women or even like basic approaching women um, or asking a, a woman out, the tension of does she like me, does she not like me was so hard to process that I would do something to like come to the conclusion quickly she doesn't like me. And a lot of guys do this. We're like, um, you know, if they look at a woman, she'll look away and be like, oh, she must hate me. She's like, no, she doesn't know anything about you. She just happened to look and look away. But they, they, they drive themselves into self-rejection because the tension of does she like me, does she not like me is too hard. And I would relate that to like being afraid to leave the womb. It's like, we don't have trust in what's going out out there. Uh, so I don't want even want to, I don't even want to leave my mom's vagina. Uh, solution to that is to under, it, it goes back to the, the uh, true perception of abundance um, of, okay, this woman here might reject me, but I need to give her the chance to like me. I need to give her the chance. Um, if you're self rejecting, I think it's a fear of the tension of not knowing. Um, and you know, I, I gave this uh, assignment to one of my clients recently because like, he's very afraid of what people think of him. Um, approaching a woman and like flirting with her is, like, is far beyond his edge at the moment. So, and, but he has all these incorrect perceptions of people because he's, he hasn't actually engaged. So he's like, I think people hate me. I don't know, but I think people hate me. And he, he's like, He's like brainwashing himself into thinking people who don't know. I mean, we're talking strangers here. Like they hate him. It's like that. Like, it's very unlikely anyone hates you. They might probably didn't even notice you. So I gave him the assignment to go around. Um, uh, I gave him the assignment to go around and uh, ask people. Not oh, hold on. Shit. Sorry, I got a pop up. Um, I gave him the assignment to go out. And not, not hit on women, not like, you know, flirt or try to do anything. Just like literally go up to people and say like, hey, I'm, I'm working on myself right now. Um, can I just ask you a weird question? Or you don't even, not even say the work on myself. Can I ask you a weird question? Um, can you give me your true first impression of me? And um, just that breaking, breaking that wall, one, has got him out of the womb, the safety of his home, not his mom's, mom's womb, but the metaphoric womb. And like finding out that many of his perceptions are wrong. You have to collapse that wave function of uncertainty. That's why decisiveness is such a critical masculine trait. And we know that decisiveness is related to testosterone. You inject testosterone into a person, they become more comfortable in making hard decisions. A guy in infant level consciousness doesn't want to make decisions because he's afraid of collapsing the wave function. He'd rather leave everything as uncertain. The cat is both alive and dead. She likes me and she doesn't like me. Um, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to fail. I'm just going to leave that in the possibilities. Like I'm gonna, I could be all of these different careers, but I'm not going to commit to any one of them, um, which, is, which, is, which is a boyhood trait. Uh, so I hope that addressed your question. Um, let's see if there's anything else on self-ejecting. You have to be willing to die. I think last episode I, I read the quote, man, into the, man in the arena. It's better to fight the good fight and lose than to not play. Um, because you're actually, uh, and actually one more thing on that, if you're afraid to engage with the feminine, 
one I would actually recommend another episode. Um, listen to the Mother Complex episode. We talk about the roots of uh, engaging with the feminine or viewing all of the feminine as your mother rather than a lover because you don't you haven't risen up to be a peer with the feminine, so she, you turn every woman into your mom, which can be you know intimidating uh, to some guys. Um, is recognizing again that the most beneficial thing for her, if you really want to be a good man, the best thing you can do for her is to be someone that can give her pleasure, right? If, if doing it for your selfish motivation isn't good enough, if like your own happiness isn't good enough, just think if you don't give her a chance to like you, you're actually letting her down. Maybe that'll help. I hope that helps. You can let me know. Um, Oh, and actually another episode that I mentioned is the Abundance Model episode. I didn't mean for this to be an episode where I just plug all the rest of my episodes, but I'm referencing topics that I've talked about in more depth. Because Nice Guy Syndrome is kind of an all-encompassing thing that relates to a lot of things. Um, oh, the episode is the Abundance Model uh, with Matt Cohn. It's mostly speaking about abundance in terms of money, um, but everything we talk about in that episode can be related to love or sex or validation or respect. It's a way of... Of, it gives you a framework of actually dealing with the resource that you feel scarce about. We, we speak about money mostly, but you could, again, you can apply it to sex or love. Um, treating your resources in a way that forces abundance. It's not like thinking abundantly, law of attraction nonsense. It's like you actually, you actually behave in a way with that resource in such a way that it forces you to have more than you need. And when you perceive that you have more than you need, because it's not about having a dollar amount or a number of women you've had sex with. Like when you perceive there's more than you need, a lot of your scarcity behaviors, your grasping behaviors, your nice guy things, your cutting corners, your unethical moves, a lot of them, you just disincentivize them. Like there's no, if you know that you have enough money, there's no reason for you to ever cheat someone out of a deal. If you know you're going to have all the beautiful lovemaking that you want, there's no reason for you to manipulate a woman into bed. You can just, this is how things are. Father Nature, I know everything is good. Let me do what's good for everybody. Um, what else? I reference a few books. Obviously, No More Mr. Nice Guy, the, the book that coined the term Nice Guy Syndrome. Um, in the episode with Dr. Michael Pariser, it was, it was referencing his new book that just came out, uh, which is a workbook to No More Mr. Nice Guy, No More Mr. Nice Guy, The Hero's Journey. It has a bunch of um, exercises that tie to the Nice Guy book. And if you want a more in-depth thing, uh, there's the 21 day mask and archetype challenge, which is still half price right now. If you go to rwando.com slash archetype dash five zero, so rwando.com slash archetype dash 50, um, it's still half price because uh, uh, my website is slowly being rebuilt. Let me see if there's any other, uh, oh, I referenced uh, anything with testosterone. You really should look at, check out the book, The Virility Paradox. Uh, I did mention it, and you know, um, I had the I had the author on my podcast last summer as well. Um, so I recommended it in the masculine underground group, and someone mentioned that the description seems kind of anti-masculine. And uh, you know, the, the author's a really nice guy, great guy, left-leaning, which is fine. You know, uh, left-leaning tends to be more feminine. Um, if you can look past his value judgments and just look at the studies, it'll show you in very pure, clear, objective biology what is masculine, what is actually connected to the male sex hormone. And I think it was useful for me of recognizing, okay, okay, there are a bunch of cultural things related to testosterone or to masculinity, but there are a lot of things that are purely biological and they've evolved for very good purposes. And it's important for, 
anyone who wants to be the masculine role in his relationships or his group or his team or his family to embody those because they're beneficial to the tribe. Um, what else did I reference? That's it. Let's see. Some more question. I uh, said, so thank you for the response. Also experiencing seeing signs from women and making up as it wasn't a sign. Yeah, a lot of people do that justifying justifying the low tension possibility, right? So I'm going to read into your situation. I assume it's the situation where you see you're engaging with a woman on some level. It's not clear on whether she likes you or not, but you are interpreting uh, a random tell as a negative thing. Oh, she doesn't like me. Um, as justification for let me disengage and go back into the womb. A lot of guys do this. I've done this a lot. Like when I was doing pickup, I would leave a conversation as soon as I ran out of things to say, which is, which would be pretty soon because I was nervous. And like my friends or my coach at the time would be like, why'd you leave? She was, she might've been into you. Like it was too soon to tell. Uh, you, you need, and the best advice that I got back then is to stay in the conversation until she leaves. Not that you should go around bothering women, but most guys who are afraid of women, they will read into situations thinking a woman doesn't like him when she might actually like him or she doesn't even know yet. Like, you know, it takes someone a, a bit of time to decide whether or not they like you sometimes. Um, so I would actually maybe even give you the same exercise of like, if you are in a point where you know progressing or escalating is impossible for you or is not where you're at right now, if you're engaging with a woman, use it as an opportunity to grow. Because if you leave, maybe you're going to get rejected anyway, but you're never going to grow from it. You might as well say like, hey, I'm really nervous right now. I feel really awkward asking this, but I have this idea in my head that you did this and this means you don't like me. Or, 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 or you could phrase it anyway. Like you want to get feedback from someone and like ask for honest feedback. Be like, hey, listen, I'm really trying to work on myself. So if there's anything I did or said, that is that you didn't like, can you just let, like, let me know because I, I really want to know for next time. If you say this to any woman, she will probably be honored. doesn't mean she's going to fall in love with you from that, but she'll be like, oh, uh, okay, here's, here's exactly what it was. Uh, you did this and I thought it was like kind of creepy or I thought this was a turnoff. Or she might be like, no, that, that really meant nothing. Or she might even say like, oh, actually, I kind of like you. Like, what are you talking about? Um, you got to collapse the wave function and get real feedback. That's the best advice I would say for someone because if you are staying in this realm where you're not getting that real feedback and you're trying to interpret things that aren't real, um, you're now creating a false reality for yourself. You are brainwashing yourself into a reality that has that is very far away from other people's reality, which one means it's going to be impossible to connect with people. And two, it's going to be even more impossible to take on that father nature because if you, in order to uh, take on that true father nature, you need to be in the same reality as other people. So I think that's it. Um, unless there's any last questions, we will end. Uh, apologies if I talk too fast or my throat's been, I don't have COVID, but I have a sore throat. And actually, I don't fucking know, but I'm pretty sure I'm healthy. But uh, anyway, I don't need to apologize. I'm just letting you know. Um, is there anything else I have to say? Oh, next episodes. I have some episode ideas of what I might want to talk about. I'm going to put a poll in the Mask and Underground group um, for that. Um, thinking about speaking about uh, Asian or maybe cultural conditioning. I don't know if I want to make it specifically Asian because I think Christian households have certain things. That's one thing. So like parental upbringing of a sort. Um, when I put in the polls, the last two polls, people added 
the second most uh, voted on thing was bisexual shame, which I thought was interesting. Um, so if that's voted on, I will speak about that. I don't have a ton to speak about that. I have explored my sexuality. Um, so I'm not really sure what it is that all those guys wanted to know about bisexual shame. But if it's voted on, we will talk about it. I can share my own experience at least. Um, anyway, I would like to speak about abundance, both from uh, whether it's with sex or love or money. Um, it can get a little spiritual. I'm going to try to ground it. The abundance model is very practical, I think. But I, will, I could speak about the abundance model if that's what's voted on. Um, great. All right. Thanks for watching. Goodbye.